So maybe you know this, maybe you don't. About a month ago, uh, I took my family. We went to the great state of Texas. Uh, I had a wedding to do there. A guy that had lived here for a while moved to Texas and got married. I might be doing a lot of those weddings in the future. I don't know. Seems like there's a migration that direction. Uh, Enjoyed it. We had a great time. It was wonderful. We stayed in Airbnbs for the most part because there are seven of us and we don't work in hotel rooms. So did Airbnbs until the last night when we were going to fly out from Austin back home. And we stayed in a Hilton Garden. So we had to leave this uh, wedding Left there late, it was about a two-hour drive, so got into that hotel kind of late, crammed my whole family in there. That was epic. <laughs> I don't even know how to translate that. I have a lot of kids, and I don't know what that one was needing. It's like, I don't like this guy talking. <laughs> Still don't. So it's one of those hotels that's built around a garden in the middle. So all the rooms are kind of like in in a square around the center. Every room looks outside. Every room can look into. You get out of your door and there's a rail and you can look into the garden. 25 stories tall or something like that. So we get in there. We're on the 16th floor. We go to sleep. 12, 23 a.m., this alarm hits. It's an alarm for the entire hotel. And it was like this, get out of the hotel. This is an emergency. Do not use the elevator. Get out of the hotel. This is an emergency. Do not use the elevator, right? So I'm like, ah, you wake up. You're just like disoriented, right? You're like, ah, is Antifa here? Is Iran attacking? What's going on, right? Like high, high level. And uh, we're like, okay, okay. So Myron, my seven-year-old, he's in the bed with us. So I grab him, and I'm waking him up, and I set him down. You know how when you're like seven, and your parents wake you up, but you're not actually awake? So he's just standing there doing this, right? He's doing this like, uh, and he just crawled right back into bed. And so I'm just thinking for a second, like, what in the world? This alarm is just going off. And you can hear throughout the entire hotel, doors slamming, fit feet like pounding, like everyone's leaving the hotel. They're listening to this. I'm like wondering, what? So I walk out my door and there's a rail right there and I start just watching and it's pandemonia. You can imagine, it's just pandemonia. People leaving, doing their thing. One of my kids kind of comes out and sits next to me. So we're just kind of leaning on this rail and watching everybody flee, right? Well, right across maybe two floors down, was this guy. It was the best. This dad comes out of his door. He's got like one of those soft leather briefcases around his neck. He's in boxer shorts and a t-shirt. He's holding a kid, looks about like Myron's age, about seven years old. And he's holding the door open with his foot for his wife who comes out dressed in one of the robes that they give you with her hair like she'd put her finger in a light socket, right? So he's just, he's doing it, man. And he looks across over at me And here I am with my arms on the rail. Everyone's running but me and my kid, and we're just watching this. And he just goes, huh? And then just takes off running. And I'm like, 16 floors of stairs. I'm not doing it. So I just went back in my room. Like, if it was an emergency, my family would be with Jesus right now, right? I'm like, I just don't believe this. I said, I'm going back to bed. Eh, eh, eh. 
<laughs> this is an emergency. Leave the hotel. Don't use the elevator. So my wife decides, I'm going to call the front desk. So she calls the front desk, and I'm like, you're not going to get through. Everyone's calling there. No one was calling her because they were all leaving the hotel, right? So she picks right up, and my wife's like, what's the deal here? She goes, oh, yeah, every once in a while, the humidity gets high. That's what happens in the hotel. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? You're not going to make, you're not going to like break in and be like, hey, by the way, it's all, no, they could care less, right? So we called the Hilton the next morning and said, you refund us our room. And they did. So that was all right. False alarms. We're in a section of Mark where there's a group of people that keep making false alarms on Jesus, right? They just keep, they're what I call the Bible refs. They're waiting to sound the alarm on something that Jesus does that does not fit within their little teeny view of how God is to do things. And so that's what they're doing. They're always blowing their whistles and throwing their flags. That's who they are. So we're going to see just a bunch of alarms. And what Jesus is going to say is, "Uh uh-uh, pick up your flag. There is no foul here. Your humidity is off the chart. You're sweating for no reason. Stop it. And maybe these stories, there's three of them in a row, very similar, painting a portrait of Jesus. Maybe these stories, if you grew up in a church where it was a bunch of Bible refs, where it felt like they were always throwing flags and blowing whistles at anything, this might set you free. Because there's a portrait being painted of Jesus that is brilliant in these texts. All right, so you ready? Let's go. Verse 18, Mark chapter 2. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees, the Pharisees are the Bible refs. These are the dudes that blow whistles and throw flags. That's what they do all the time. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Alarm number one, fasting. And here's what they're doing. They are missing the fun. And the essence of this story is really, there's a group of people saying to Jesus, you're not serious enough. You need to get serious about things. And so they're comparing Jesus' ministry with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was serious. He was hardcore. He was a scavenger. He lived in the desert. He ate bugs. He made his own clothing, right? He lived off the grid in a straw bale house. He drank recycled gray water. He was serious about it. He understood the world we live in, right? So look at Jesus, 
And they're like, you're not doing it. You're not killing it like John the Baptist. You and your boys are partying. You're soft. Come on. You hang out with tax collectors. You enjoy yourself. Come on. You can't enjoy yourself, right? Don't you know what's happening in our country right now? How can you ignore that, how bad things are? You're putting your head in the sand, Jesus. Come on, stand up, stand for something. What is wrong with you? That's what they were saying to him, right? They're soft. So they want Jesus to get out there and protest and do this. Save their money for something more important than a party. That's what they're saying. Because the Pharisees, their identity was wrapped up in duty wrapped up in what they did, wrapped up in serving, wrapped up in fasting, wrapped up in their sign holding, wrapped up in their protest, wrapped up in all that kind of stuff. And so they're like, Jesus, how can't you do this? What's wrong with you? We have our signs and we have our verses and we have our protests. Come on, Jesus, get serious about the way things are. And what's Jesus' answer to them? Well, number one, he says this. He says, I am the king of the party. If the groom is here, you have to party. What's the worst thing that you could do at a wedding? Be a party pooper. I don't know who came up with that word. I don't even know what it means, but you know what it means, right? right? You, you go there and you're, you're a fun hater. What's the worst thing you do if you're at a feast and someone has spent a lot of money and a lot of time to make a beautiful, delicious bounty of food? What's the worst thing you could do? I'm fasting right now. No thanks. I'm praying for the salvation of the nations. I'm praying for the repentance of America, not me right now. Right? That's the worst thing you could do. And that's what Jesus is saying is happening right here. Like, that's what's happening. These are, these are like fun haters. You know people like that? Like, everything is always negative. You buy a new car, and they're the person that says, oh, that car? Huh. They got the worst ratings on Kelly Blue Book. Good luck with that. You buy a house? Oh, you bought a house in the bubble, man three years that things are going to be foreclosed on you. You get a degree, they're like, oh, good job with that job. You know what's going to happen? You're going to be replaced by a robot. Oh, thanks, right? That's what these people were. Like, oh, you say, please go away and die. That's what I want you to do, right? So that's this crew. But John is making a portrait of Jesus here that you and I are supposed to get. If you go back to the beginning of chapter two, the first time the Bible refs get mad at Jesus it was because he was the God who forgives, the crippled, brought in. And Jesus bypasses their whole religious system and just says, by grace, your sins are forgiven. He's the God who forgives. Then we saw that story where Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. But he's not only the God that forgives, he's the doctor that heals. And now in this story, the portrait is, he is the groom who parties. He enjoys life. This is what you and I are supposed to be getting. And the idea behind all these stories is this. Jesus is the king, and you and I won't control him. Jesus is the king, and you and I don't get to control him. So Jesus gives two stories, two illustrations of what he's doing. And they're missed on us because we don't really do it, right? Wineskins and patching garments. Like, who in here is storing their wine in a wineskin? Anybody? Anybody? because I'd love to chat with you, because you've got to be a very interesting person, right? I've always wondered, like, who was the first person that decided to store their wine in a wineskin? Like, man, I got all this wine. Where do I put it? 
I need that goat's clothes. Let's grab those. Let's try that. Like, that's insane, right? But in that day, that's what you did. You didn't have bottles. You didn't have that. So wineskins were it, right? Who's patching their old Navy jeans? Nobody, because they're like 20 bucks, right? But this was what, the way that that culture was. And what would happen if you tried to patch a pair of jeans with an unshrunk piece of cloth, the moment you washed it, that cloth would shrink and make the hole even worse. Wineskins could, could expand one time as that wine fermented. But then if you tried to do it again, the second time, that wineskin would burst. So what Jesus is saying to these Bible refs is he's saying this, religious people, the good news is gonna tear you apart. The good news is gonna burst your bubble. You're not gonna be able to handle this truth. That's what he's saying to them. Because of the way you are and because you're steeped in this religion, this is going to break you. The good news is going to break you, right? So that's story number one. Story number two, verse 23. They're all similar, as you'll see. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Alarm number two, this is fasting, and I just say they're missing the point. So here's what happens. Jesus and his boys are walking along. They're on this path. It's cutting through a grain field, and as they walk, there's no 7-Elevens. There's no Circle Ks. There's no AM, PM, Mini Marts. They get hungry. So as they're walking on the Sabbath day, they just reach out, grab some heads of wheat, and start to eat them, all right? The Bible refs see this. And they freak out. They start throwing flags and whistling, and they say it's unlawful. Now, my question is, where is the chapter and verse that says, on the Sabbath, if you're walking through a grain field, you can't grab any grain? There isn't one. But here's what had happened. A law that had been given 1,400 years before, a very simple law, had been made very complex. The simple law, if you read it, is Exodus 20. It just says this. Hey, on the Sabbath day, keep it holy. You don't work. Your wife doesn't work. Your kids don't work. Your servants don't work. Your cow doesn't work. Your donkey doesn't work. Your chickens don't work. In fact, he'll later on say the land doesn't work. The, the land's going to have a Sabbath as well. It's one day out of the week. You just stop working, period. Really simple, right? Take it off. Relax. But over 1,400 years, what had happened was, what does it mean to relax? What's work? So they would added all these rules to that simple rule. So I'll give you some of them. You are not on the Sabbath allowed to spit on the ground. Here's why. Your spit could roll in the dust, create a little furrow, and that would be plowing on the Sabbath day. Right? Crazy. Women... We're not allowed to shower on the Sabbath day. 
because when they got out of the shower, there might be water on the ground and they would be tempted to clean up the water on the ground and that would be working on the Sabbath. Men could shower because we don't have that same temptation. (laughs) Ah, leave it, it's fine. (laughs) So good, right? You're not allowed to carry anything heavier than a fig. So if your dentures weighed more than a fig, on the Sabbath day, no dentures for you, right? You are only allowed to take 1,999 steps on the Sabbath day. I can go on and on and on and on. A very simple, beautiful gift called rest, called take a day off, had been turned into something insane, a day where you're supposed to relax and be thankful for what God has given to you, to remember who he is and what he's done. A day that was just supposed to be beautiful becomes exhausting, trying to keep all the rules. Have you ever taken a vacation and you cram so much into that vacation that you get home and you're exhausted from the vacation and you need to take a day off? That's what the Sabbath day became. It was exhausting because you're trying to figure out, did I keep all the rules? So what does Jesus say? He says, have you read? This is a form of an ancient burn because these are the Bible scholars. These are the guys that memorize the Bible. And he's like, wait a second, haven't you read? It's a subtle burn. And he gives a story of one of their heroes, how one of their heroes, when he had need, did what was necessary to survive. And then Jesus just says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not an opportunity for you to show how religious you are. The Sabbath was a gift given to you. Do you know that? They missed that point. That God just said, one day a week, take it off. Be reminded that you are not a slave anymore, that you are not a mud, brick, baking slave in Egypt to a Pharaoh that dominates you and you have no control over. You are now sons and daughters of God Almighty. You're my kids. One day you do that. We're supposed to do that. Just one day out of the week, you stop. You unplug. You stop trying to get ahead. You stop being a slave to work. Stop trying to be a slave to your kid's soccer, to sports, to culture, to school, to all that stuff, just one day a week. Not that work is bad. I have this great quote from Abraham Herschel, who wrote the best book on Sabbath keeping. Check this out. He says this, there is happiness in the love of labor. Work is good, but there is misery in the love of gain. What happens when you just can't turn it off, when you're redlined all the time, it's because you love gain so much and it begins, you begin to just backfire. Your motor starts to run down. So one time, one time a week, this rhythm, you're supposed to flip off the switch. I'm not a slave to Pharaoh. I'm not a slave in Egypt. I'm an image bearer of God Almighty. I don't need to gain more. I don't need to run faster. I don't need more money. I don't need more junk. I don't need more stuff one day a week. I don't need more information in my brain. I don't need more letters behind my name. I don't need any of that one day a week. I unplug. I don't need my kids to represent in soccer or ballet or chess or karate or whatever it is. I don't need that, right? I don't need to overpost on Instaface how great my life is. 
Like one day a week, no one needs to know how great my cat is or what I had for dinner. Just one day a week. Or you just, I don't need to do this anymore. I'm unplugging. And if you'll do that, you'll find your soul is restored. Your soul is. You're not caught up in it all. You're unplugged from it. And you realize what you actually want can never be found in the cosmos and will only be found in the creator. Just one day a week. What I actually need is him. That's what I need. That's why he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. What you actually need is me. All these other things won't do it for you. Right? Amazing. So the portrait gets even better. The God who forgives. The doctor who heals. The groom who parties. The Lord of rest. The Lord of rest. And then last story. Chapter three. This story actually goes with these three. When you read it, you see it. Sometimes the chapter divisions aren't the best. This is one of those times. Verse one, chapter three. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Alarm number three, healing and they're missing love. So Mark brilliantly here is like trapping these Bible refs, these Pharisees, because they have set up a thing in their church where there is a man who is obviously broken. And they're waiting because they know Jesus has been gravitating toward broken people. So they've set it up to see, will Jesus heal this guy so that we can accuse him, right? You read that and you're like, how nutty is religion? How nutty is religion that they would do this? How weird is it? This is going to hurt their cause because every normal person in that church service would be like, heal the dude. Are you kidding? Heal the dude. But not the Bible refs, not them. Sometimes we do things that hurt our cause. I have this article at home about celebrities. You know when celebrities jump on usually an immoral cause? They looked at like trends, what happens when a celebrity like backs something and they found that there's like 25% of America that's like nonchalant, like whatever. But once a celebrity jumps in and is like, you need to do this or you need to stop doing that. Once they do that, that 25% immediately says, what? If you're going to say that, I'm going to do the opposite. Like it almost always backfires on celebrities. Like it's hilarious. One of the examples they gave was Chick-fil-A a couple of years ago. Dan Cathy, there was a controversy about him. And all these celebrities said, hey, let's boycott Chick-fil-A for the next year. Well, guess what happened? A whole bunch of us ate a bunch more chicken. And he made like a billion dollars in the next quarter because everyone went and had more chicken, like it backfired. So now when celebrities have these like immoral causes, I'm like, yes, backfire, baby. This is gonna backfire on these guys, right? It's gonna backfire. Are you kidding? The dude's broken. The dude's broken, Right? 
So what does Jesus do? Well, it says he got angry. Do you know that Jesus can get angry? Sometimes we want the long-haired hippie Jesus. Mm, This is the angry Jesus. He was angry because of how their religion had been built up so much and got so far away from God's plan that now it was hurting people. And he was angry at the hardness of their hearts that they didn't even care about it. No empathy for broken people. They were more concerned with their church service being pulled off according to their rules than they were for a hurt person to be healed. May that never happen here. May we always say we're a hospital for broken people. Have you noticed people that go to hospitals aren't usually following the rules? That's why they're in the hospital. They did something stupid, okay? That's what church is to be, the place where hurt people get help. That's what this is. And so Jesus is angry, and he's grieved by them. Can't believe it. So he heals them. Stretch forth your hand. The dude's healed. And then right after that, this is a great verse, the Pharisees, those are the Bible refs, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So the Pharisees, the Bible refs, get with this other group called the Herodians. They have a huddle and they make up a play to kill Jesus. Now that doesn't mean much to us today, but if you're a reader of Mark 2,000 years ago, you'd be going, what? Because these two are as different as possible. The Pharisees, the Bible refs, they're the moral guys. They do everything right. They're the duty guys, devotion guys, Bible guys, right? The Herodians were Jersey Shores, real housewives of Beverly Hills, right? That's these two groups. So the Herodians were, they're just, they're nuts. One brother fell in love with another brother's wife, had an affair with her, stole her from that brother, and married her. Their dad was so bad, the Caesar at the time said, it's safer to be Herod's pig than it is to be Herod's son. Because if one of his sons dissed him, he would just kill him. He was nuts, right? Killed one of his wives as well. Like this is a really, really jacked up family, the Herodians, bad, bad people, right? It was, hey, I'm gonna do whatever I want. I'm gonna do whatever I want. And both of them now wanna kill Jesus. So eventually, John the Baptist will actually confront the Herodians. He'll confront the guy that took his brother's wife. And he'll say, that is wrong. You shouldn't do that. Guess what happens to John the Baptist? He's put in prison and his head is cut off because the Herodians will not tolerate anyone telling them what to do. Anyone calling them a sinner. Hey, you be you, I be me. If I feel this is right, I'm going to do what I feel is right. I'm going to pursue whatever makes me happy. And if you tell me I can't, I will destroy you. I will cancel you. That's the Herodians. These two groups, normally they hate each other. Both of them are united in their hatred of Jesus. Now, why? Well, the Pharisees, here's why. The Pharisees want religion. Here's what religion is. Religion is, if I follow all the rules, if I do everything right, then God owes me. 
It's a way of controlling God. That's what every religion is. If I follow the steps, if I do the formula, if I you know, check off all the list, then God, you owe me a good life. It's in every one of our hearts because you and I were born with it. It's called the covenant of works and it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter two when God looks at Adam, our forebearer, and he says to Adam, do this, don't do that, and live. Eat of these trees, don't eat of that tree, and you'll live. So deep in the human heart, there's always a Pharisee that believes that you have earned the right to God's blessing because of how you've lived. Every single one of us has a little Pharisee in our heart. We did everything right. Now God owes me something. I can control God. I gave money. I gave time. I gave effort. I read my Bible. I prayed. Whatever our formula is, so now God, you owe me the good life. You owe it to me. And then secondly, allows us to do this. Judge everyone else. They didn't do it right. They deserve that. Or they didn't do it right, and I'm so glad I'm not like them. So we become judgmental, hard-hearted haters. That's what actually happens with religion, okay? So Jesus here is taking that all away from them. Because you remember the story, the beginning of this chapter, chapter two, where a cripple is brought in, probably crippled because of his lifestyle. And Jesus just says, son, your sins are forgiven. Doesn't do the sacrifice, doesn't do the system, doesn't do the formula. He bypasses that all and just says, I forgive you because I'm gonna forgive you by grace. And that took away everything that the religious people had worked for for thousands of years. You can't just do that, Jesus. No way. You can't take that all away from us. We've earned this. And they hate him. They hate him. The Herodians on the other side the Herodians on the other side, Jesus is calling them to live a pure life. He's calling people sinners, right? And they're like, wait, what gives you the right? I was made this way. I was born with a proclivity to steal my brother's wife. That's how I am. I have to act authentically. I have to be happy. I have to be me. You can't judge me. And because of Jesus' judgment of them, they want to kill him as well. Both sides, both sides. Because Jesus is saying, if you're a religious person, the results are going to be hard-hearted hatred of people. And if you're a Herodian, man, chasing your dreams, trying to figure out what's going to make you happy, trying to live on what you feel, man, that's a mirage. That's never going to do it. That's never going to. He is critiquing the way that you and I live our lives. Moral, duty, that side, or, you know, you be you, live according to your dreams, pursue that. He's saying both of those things, both of those things will fail. That's why he says at the end of chapter two, he says this, the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What Jesus says is, I'm the rest. You think you're gonna find it in religion? You won't. You think you're going to find it in just doing whatever you feel is right? You won't. I'm the rest you're looking for. I'm it. I'm the rest. And when you read these stories, who actually gets Jesus? Who are the heroes of these stories? A crippled, compromised dude and his four buddies. A tax-collecting thief who betrayed his country. And a man born busted up. The wrong people are constantly the heroes of these stories. 
that Jesus gravitates toward them, the people that know they're not, the people that realize they're not, the people that say, Jesus, I need rest. I need that, right? And so Jesus moves towards them, saves them, rescues them, and we'll see at the end of this chapter what he's going to do with them. He's going to create something out of them. So whenever I read the stories of Jesus, they're not just, oh, that's interesting. It's always as a mirror. I have to ask myself, what group am I in? Am I in church today like a Bible ref, like a Pharisee, because I'm trying to get God to give me what I want, the goods. I'm checking off a checklist. Okay, God, here's my formula. So now you owe me. I can control you with this. Look out for that. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people that are so mad at God because they followed a formula. But Matt, I did everything right for my kids. I brought them to youth group. I sent them to private Christian school. I taught them Bible verses. I did devotions. And now they're addicted to drugs. And I'm angry with God. Matt, I did everything right for my wife. I took care of her. I loved her. I put her needs first. And now she's divorcing me. I'm angry at God. And on and on and on, right? They think God owes them something. I did the formula right. And God failed me and I hate him now. We're just like these groups. Be careful of that. Be careful. God doesn't owe me anything. God doesn't owe me anything. Or are we the Herodians? We're in church because we really want God to approve of what we're doing. Approve of our feelings, approve of our dream, approve of us. Like somehow in our little minds, we can come up with a better plan than God. And the Bible says this, he can do exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask or even think. That we come here and we say, God, God, conform me to your image. God, get me into your plan. God, get me into your way. Not me telling you that you need to approve of me it's God, I want to be conformed. I want to deny myself, take up my cross and follow you, right? Why are we here? Are we the three people in these stories that know they're jacked up and broken? I'm a cripple because of my own compromised life. I was after gain and I would actually prostitute myself, sell myself in order to get gain like the tax collectors. Or born, born broken. I'm just born broken. And Jesus says, I'll gravitate toward you because you know you're not. You know you're not. You're not arguing with me. Who are we? I pray we're a group of people that understand his grace, that understand that we're not, that he heals and he changes and he transforms us because that's the Jesus of Scripture. That's the one that works. It's why every Sunday I always drive toward communion because we're to remember him. Not remember how good we kept rules or how God's supposed to approve of something. We're going to remember Jesus. That's what it is. And so it forces me to always conclude with Jesus, which is really healthy for a Bible teacher because he's the point. So we take communion to remember him. That's how we take communion. Not to remember how good we kept our rules and how God has to do something for us because we can control him. Not even remembering how bad we've been, that we're Herodians and we blew it this week. That's not why we do communion. We do communion because we remember that we are saved by his grace. 
And that same grace continues to work in us and transform us like a new life set inside of us. So we keep coming back to the table of God's grace. That's what Jesus is saying. Keep coming back to my grace. And so, Father, today, I pray for the Pharisee in me. I pray that today I would accept grace gracefully. That I would not try to earn what can only be given. I pray for all of us, Lord. That's not about formulas. It's not about checkoffs. It's about you moving toward my brokenness and transforming it, changing my scars into your stars, making me into a trophy of your grace. Let's eat of that grace today. You can wrestle with your communion. It's Peel the, only the aluminum, whatever that is. Maybe it's aluminum. It looks like aluminum, not the plastic. We're going to change these when we can. They're on a shipment right now from China or something. <laughs> and Jesus, for the Herodian in me, that wants you to come and approve of what I do, I want you to come and say my brokenness is okay. You're a father. You're the king. He says, I have so much more for you. I won't you stay in your brokenness. I won't let you stay in your sinfulness. I'm going to cleanse you from it. May we let you cleanse us today. May we not resist your grace. May we not resist your truth. May we not resist your work. May we be clay on your wheel, conformed to your way. So as we drink today, cleanse us, purify us, heal us. Let's drink together. Amen. So we're going to sing another song. For that song, if you want some prayer, there'll be people stationed up here in front of this stage. They'd love to pray for you. If you want to be baptized, every Sunday we offer baptism. Scripture just says, repent and be baptized. And you have that opportunity right out here. If you want to be baptized, meet right over at these doors and we'd love to partake in that chapter of God's work in your life. Would you stand for one final song?